Welcome to Talks at GS, where leading thinkers share insights and ideas shaping the world. This session of Talks at GS was recorded before a live audience. We are absolutely thrilled to have Kirsten Green here today, who is a rock star in the venture capital world. She um, founded Forerunner Ventures in 2010. She's raised over $650 million. She's invested in over 80 companies. Um, so let's, let's, let's talk about your early days. So you started covering um, retail and as you were focused, so what drew you to that space originally on the research side? So I think you know early on I was I was guided towards by my parents doing something that was like practical and economical. You could get a job, so I sort of ended up as an economics major. I was interning at Merrill Lynch early on, and I sort of like fell in love with the idea of like learning on the job. And I feel like a lot of investing, and it's proven to be that way for a 20 plus year career, is about just learning. Always being curious, always asking questions, always kind of digging in, trying to connect dots. And I really fell in love with that early. Um, when I got my job at Montgomery, I really wanted to work at Montgomery. No one here knows Montgomery Securities. Basically being It got, that you know, part of all of the, the mergers that happened in the late 90s, and it ultimately um, became part of Bank of America Securities. But at the time, it was the 90s when it was like the first generation of kind of the dot-com time in San Francisco, and there was a lot of action and activity, and um, it was just a young, vibrant firm. Um, with a great kind of mentorship program and a, and a lot happening so you could get a lot of opportunity as a young person. So I was really eager to work there. Problem was when I applied, there was no jobs, um, but the only job opening was a one in the real estate department. So I was like, I'll take that job okay, and then I'll figure out what I want to do here. Um, so I started out covering REITs um, and I pretty much was covering REITs at the same time, scoping around for like who had a space that they were covering that would be more interesting or fun to me. Um, and in that, I identified retail. Um, and so I just sort of wormed my way into retail. And I think what I ultimately, um, I can't really remember what my instincts were around that. It might have been that I thought the analyst was cool or something, but, but ultimately I liked the space because I found the opportunity to invest with a real um, combination of kind of qualitative and quantitative. So I think you know, a lot of people that are attracted to these kinds of jobs in finance have a real comfort with numbers and with kind of analysis and analytics. Um, and I was definitely on that spectrum. But I also really loved people and you know, being intrigued by people's behavior and why they did things that they did. And I think every good investor is trying to think a little bit differently than everyone else. That's where you find the opportunities where you're looking for alpha. And if you have a point of view from the qualitative side and you can combine it with the quantitative side, like that's where some of that can happen. And so consumer and retail lent itself to that. And then you stayed, were super successful and decided, you know what, I'm gonna take a break. You could have taken your investing experience and gone to any number of venture capital firms or private equity firms, but instead, 
you decide to become literally an entrepreneur. Well, yes, I thought one year, and I told myself, you have to take one year. You cannot take a J-O-B in this one year. You must go and meet people and talk to people about their careers and find out what's, you know, what else is out there. Um, and one year went by fast, and two years went by fast, and I met a lot of amazing people, and I came out of my shell, and I got offered consulting projects, and I thought, I could learn something, I'll take that project on. And my MO always was, as long as I was learning, as long as I was learning something that felt practical, that was had a forward motion to it, and as long as I was growing as a person and felt like I was adding to my being, like, I was okay with it. You know, there was definitely a point in time where I was like, I'm doing a lot of consulting projects. Did I just become a consultant inadvertently? Which, so I, then I thought, well, that's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be an investor. The one thing I never doubted the whole time was I still wanted to be an investor. That was always true. I didn't like, I mean, maybe I had a minute where I was like, maybe I should go work at a company. But then I was like, well, I should be careful what I say. But I was like, I get bored. <laughs> I like learning about all the new things all the time. So. So anyway, so one year turned into six, um, completely unplanned. I did not have a plan to start a venture firm until about six months before I did. I really was following like my nose and my gut all along. At that moment when I was like, oh, I've been a, a, maybe I've become a consultant. I better you know figure out how to be an investor. I started raising individual. Um, individual like special vehicles to invest in private companies. Um, I had a portfolio of like seven or eight of those. I'd raised like $20 million by getting like $25,000 checks. <laughs> it was like, you know, a little bit fierce, I guess. I think at that point too, people were probably like, what are you doing? And I felt even more conviction that I had to like prove that I was doing something. Um, by 08, I had a, a good little portfolio. I didn't have the whole thing wrapped in a bow the way I wanted it in terms of how I would present a fund offering or a thesis, but I had some good companies and I felt like I could leverage that. Were so you I doing had, this all on your own? Yeah. Oh, all along the way, I wanted a partner. But, but you're out raising money just, and oh yeah. finding companies and dissecting the companies and investing in the companies. You know what I'm alone. I am. Um, and I think we were just talking about this a little bit before in a different context, but it's related, which is like the only reason that is even possible is because I loved it. Right. I just loved it. So when you went out to raise the fund, was yep. it, had you built the team around you at that no, point? No. So or? I basically, um, I had met somebody early on in my career who started a hedge fund right about the same time I got offered, a, or he offered me a job as an analyst the same time I got offered a job at Montgomery Securities. I liked him and I liked the idea of that job, but it was the wrong thing at that point. I wanted the structure of Montgomery. But he ended up building a big business, several billion dollar hedge fund. We kept in touch over the years. Every couple of years, he'd be like, you wanna come work here? I'd be like, oh, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. He invested in some of the earlier stage companies that I did. And we had sort of a, a habit of going to lunch every other, every twice a year. And during this one lunch, he said to me, I've got five more years, I'm gonna retire from my business, come work here for five years, like what you've been doing, you know, I don't know, you wanna make some money, come here. And I was like, yeah, except for I just, I just met these companies that are like what I wanna invest in. And I told him about um, Birchbox and Warby Parker. And both those teams were still in business school and um, I really thought that they were kind of pushing things forward with their idea of like bringing an experience that was 
uh, was something beyond just a flat website, but thinking about how do we include the customer, the home try-on process, the sampling process, really think about what's the best of offline retail and bring a more full experience into online leverage technology to go to market to do it more efficient. So he was like, all right, fine. This is, that's what you are passionate about doing. I got Like, it. let's do an angel fund. Go to a hedge so fund I, or so, you can... So he's like, it. how do we get in business together? So he became my partner in the angel fund. And then I thought, okay, now I have money. I can show what my lens is on my own. Because before all those deals I raised, people weren't investing. They weren't investing in trusting. I mean, they were trusting me, but they were also had the choice to look at the financial statements and make a decision about the business. Right. This was a chance for me to say, I've got a blind pool of money. Here's what I do with it. And I really still thought I would go get a job somewhere else. I thought, oh, this is my ticket to like really get in the VC ecosystem. Surely I will figure out like where I will work now. And as I got into it, I guess at some point I just realized I've been doing this for too long. I have too strong of an idea of what I want to do both in terms of the companies I want to invest in and the kind of partnership I want to have with entrepreneurs, the kind of partnership I want to work in. Um, and, I, and there was this thing happening in the Valley. There were micro VC funds. There weren't a lot of them at the time. Um, there certainly have been a lot more over the last, you know, whatever, it's been a little half of a decade. But at the time, there were like, I could count them. And um, I met those guys, or the, well, they were guys, and asked them like, "How did you guys start your business?" <laughs> like, you know, I, I kind of like everybody was pretty generous. Venture is like a very social uh, category, and people like gave me, you know, gave me their ideas. Like, here's how I started my fund. Here's the investors I went to. So I put all that together, and at some point, I was like, "I'm doing it. I'm doing my own, my own way. I can do this." So as you and I have talked about retail consumer trends, immense disruption. In, in all different types of ways. Two of the platform investments that you made early, early on uh, was early in jets.com, yep. which was, for those of you who don't know, bought by Walmart for $3.3 billion. Um, and then also you invested in Dollar Shave Club, which was bought by Unilever for a billion dollars. So what was it, what was the trend at that time that you saw that you said, you know what, these are disruptors that are gonna make it? Okay. When Michael pitched Dollar Shave Club, I mean, really, I wasn't excited about a razor. There's razors out there in the world. It's a competitive category. It's a generally low margin category. But what I did get excited about was him understanding the guy customer, the male customer who was, you know, spending time online. The the friction of shopping was had been broken down by online, so he was getting more comfortable starting to do some of his own shopping. Um, with content and information and inputs, he was thinking more about grooming. If he wanted to go and buy a grooming product, he at that point went to Walgreens and was greeted by a sea of products that had been founded 50 years ago that didn't speak to him. And he just felt like it's timely. I can meet that guy where he is with a message that resonates with him. And you know, there's an entire suite of products that can be built around with that in mind. And by the way, if I do that, I've built a business that solves some of these problems the industry is facing. So like that was, yes, there were other like direct-to-consumer businesses that had started. Um, I don't, you know, I would, I don't, the first one happened probably 50 years ago. They've all, a lot of them have been direct-to-consumer businesses, but thinking about like leveraging a new model, thinking about really pushing for scale, thinking about how you fit into the ecosystem, that was new. I think with that level of ambition, and certainly so was Facebook at that point. So he had like an unfair marketing advantage to take advantage of. You then get like, you know, you're able to kind of break through the noise because you're speaking a new language, you're perking people's ears up to things, you're leveraging technology that hasn't been completely exploited. So there's 
some ways to do it on a cash efficient basis. And, um, and the industry is like, oh my gosh, change is happening fast. I want to be part of that. And you get a halo for being the leader in the space. That's like a perfect setup for what we're trying to do. The hundredth company trying to do that doesn't have the greenfield opportunity in the market, doesn't easily get the attention of the consumer, can't you know, really find efficiency on marketing channels that are overpicked over. And meanwhile, six years have gone by and a lot of those companies have gotten pretty good with doing things internally too. So like the world keeps changing. We can't invest in the same thing in 2019 as we did in 2012. Um, and so like, again, that's part of what's interesting about the job and that's part of like where we have to kind of keep pushing ourselves. And as you talked about the importance of the founder mm-hmm. and the relationship, spending time with the founder, a lot of what's in the news right now is, look, founders that are really good at what they do are disruptive in their own ways to create these disruptive models that don't exist today. Um, so they're creative, Yep. Um, maybe a little eccentric. Yep. Um, they want to have control over their baby, but you also, you know, are the adult in the room funding this. Yep. How do you balance those things? How do you it's a think challenge. about them? You do it in the context of a relationship. You ever have like somebody who you thought was really special that you wanted to be friends with, but the way you were used to doing it like didn't quite work and you had to think a little differently? I mean, you just have to approach it with like humanity in mind. I mean, this is maybe going to sound super simplistic and maybe other investors are like whatever she's talking about. But my playbook in this, if I have one, is to say like when I go in to negotiate a deal, I try to tell an entrepreneur what I'm trying to accomplish with my deal. I mean, try to make it like I'm like you've told me your personal story while you're building your business, what you're looking to achieve. I've asked you what success is. Like, I'm going to assume that part of this partnership we're thinking about getting into involves both of us wanting to be successful. So here's what success looks like for me. Here's what I need. I got to fund it this big. I got 20 deals. I got to put one. I can't pay you that. I can only pay you that. You know, try. And I'm like, oh, just trying to achieve where we can at least like start out with a place where we both have a chance to be successful. I find that like most people are pretty rational when you put things in those terms. Now, you know, I will be one person on, of a successful company. I will be one voice of many on the cap table. So I think that like things can change along the way and nobody, one person controls it. But there's something to be said, and maybe this is just my optimistic side, about like starting to engage with somebody that way and helping them see things that way that like you get to the third deal down and you're like, listen, the priorities here are we get clean terms. That's better for everybody. Remember the conversation we had a long time ago? Like, I don't know, it's communication, right? And there's always gonna be the one that goes rogue and you know, I haven't had it yet in that regard, but I think, it, I think there needs to be more transparency on both sides. I think founders perhaps need to be told why it's important for them to maybe, you know, make sure that other people have a voice or a say in what's going on. And they won't always agree. And if they don't always agree, the fact of the matter is the founders are still in control because good ideas, dynamic ideas, crazy awesome ideas that are gonna change the world are far fewer in between than the money. Right. So a couple of months ago, Emily Weiss was here, the founder of Glacier, and, and she made it quite clear that she went and pitched her idea to hundreds of different people. And the only one who at the end of the day saw the vision was you and your firm. Well, I, in that particular case, I saw Emily and she is special. She had, um, she had, she had a clear idea of who she was, who her business would be in service to. 
what was going on with that consumer, where that consumer was headed, what they were missing, how she could solve for it. She gained perspective on all of that because she was interested. She picked up a camera, she picked up a notebook, and she built a website that people loved that had a million, you know, a, a, well, several million unique visitors every month all on her own. So when I think about what you know, are some characteristics I look for, I'm trying to partner with people who have a vision for what, like, what the world could be, like who they're serving, what the opportunity is, what the need is, um, what space they're playing into. Um, great if they have a business model vision too. <laughs> um, I also you know, really need to have people who can take a vision and turn it into action. Great. Have a vision, you know. Right. Doesn't that, that's like that's a starting point, um, but you need to be able to take like one foot in front of the other and start some motion. And looking at what Emily had been able to do on her own was darn impressive. And we also had a lot of conversations about like she. I mean, one of the great things was she had a lot of ideas, and all of them were good. And I said to her, I said, I, "You have a lot of ideas, and I don't know. I don't know if all of them are good, but probably." More than 50% of them are really good, but I've also learned it's really hard to do a lot of things. So what could we focus on? And like the conversation was productive and that felt good about the ability to have a partnership. Um, and so part of the third criteria I think about is like your ability to get people on board is really important. Is, is, you know, I'm one investor conversation of many you will have over time. Hopefully someday you have a really big company you can pitch Kathy and you guys on why you should become their bankers. You'll have to get employees really hard. The hardest part about having building a startup and getting some success is getting the right team on board and empowering yeah. that team and making them feel like they have agency and opportunity to, to contribute. Um, and then you need to get the customer on board. I mean, here's one of the things about today is like there is the customer seeks transparency, they seek information, they want to know who they're doing business with. The DNA starts with the founder. It, you know, it ideally starts to exude from everywhere, and the customer is surely going to either buy in or buy out. So I'm trying to find somebody who I feel like can compel all those different constituents to come on the journey with them. And when you speak to that, and we talked a little bit about this before, but Glossier I think is a great example. Is it a consumer products company, a beauty company? Is Glossier a brand? Is it a community? I mean, it's obviously all of those things, but Emily really does use her community to formulate her, her business. Yep. And how do you think that's the future, where we're going to have more crowdsourcing of ideas? Is that sort of the next wave of where we're headed? How do you think about I that? I definitely think that access to information the ability to share information and ideas is reshaping so many parts of our world, of our social structure, of our economy. And you can't put that genie back in the bottle. I'm not saying anybody would want to, there's some problems with it, but it just, it is what it is. People, like, they have an expectation of access to information, they have an expectation that they have a voice and they have a role to play, and I think that that is true in business as well. And so I do, I do think that the consumer, the end user, is way more present in business today and will continue to stay that way. Does that mean they want to crowdsource? I don't, I don't even, I don't know. I don't think so, actually. Right. At the end of the day, we're, I mean, consumers, we're all busy. Like, there's tons of products I like. I don't want to design the products. Like, I might like to feel like I have a stakeholder in what's going on, and if I wanted to, I could contribute a voice or I have some means to, but like, I don't really want to tell them what lipstick they should make. And, you know, so I, you know, but I do think that like having an understanding of like this whole thing is going to work 
with, with a base of customers, with a base of employees, and respecting that inherently in what you're doing is, you know, it's always been important, but it's, it's on a scale, um, you know, that it's never been on before. And I think being able to compete like on the service and the values level is more important than ever. And it's actually one of the things that has me most optimistic. I feel like the younger generation is taking responsibility by voting with their dollars and really having another level of like consciousness and how they're thinking about their purchase decisions and who else is alongside of them, who else is in business. All of those things are part of the formula. So in addition to being a world-renowned venture capitalist. In your spare time, you also decided to start something called All Raise. Well, I was part of a group of 34. It was a hugely collective effort. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about All Raise, why you guys got together, what you think the main purpose is, and obviously it's been very successful. Um, so literally, I, 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 don't, I don't know if I can pinpoint the exact moment, but I'm pretty sure like it along these lines, which is there was a lot of like not awesome stuff happening um, where, you know, this is this time like kind of around Me Too, pre-Me Too, where people were starting to like talk more about like unfair this or that. And I think we were kind of like, oh, this sucks. And we had like a get together um, with some of us and we had a fun time. I'm not sure we sat around and bitched about any of that, but it was sort of like served as an impetus to like get together. And then we thought like, we should do this again. This is really pretty fun. Um, why don't, but we, who else could we invite? And then we're like, well, we can invite someone. And then like, we're like, there's like 30, there's only like 30 of us. There's only 30 of us. And I think and it when was you say like, 30 of us. Oh, sorry. Yeah, that's like female general partners at venture firms. So people that are part of the decision-making process around how the money is going to get spent in the fund. And I think that felt outrageous. That felt outrageous. And then meanwhile, there's like a swirl of like the news coming out now, more in venture and all the other areas. And I think we just felt like there should be more of us. Like, you know, and um, and so we we thought, what can we do? Like we're innovators, we're well, we're investing in innovators. We can challenge ourselves to be innovators. And we felt like there weren't enough female, um, there weren't enough of our peers, but another data point that started to come to the surface was the disparity of where money was getting, uh, who was getting the funding. 2% of the money was going to female founders, like 2% or, or, or maybe it was 7% to female founders and diverse founders. Like it's just not representative of the population. It's not representative of who's getting served with these companies or who needs to get served. It's not representative of the people that are to work at these companies. It just has to change. And then you think about this business getting back earlier where it is like driven off of like, what are you interested in? Like, what are you drawn to? Like, I don't fault people for that. I think it's hard if you're gonna spend that much time with an entrepreneur if you don't really aren't engaged in what they're doing. So this whole idea of like Emily going to 10 men and pitching her beauty company and not getting traction sucks. At the same time, I kind of understand for the guys who like maybe aren't like, that's not their passion in life, right? So one way to fix it is like change the, like there's gotta be more dynamics in the mix. There needs to be more women check writers so that they have a broader view of what companies need to come to life. And that will hopefully in turn like spark more opportunity for founders that are also diverse. And so like we just started to feel a ton of energy around the potential for that, the need for that, the potential for that. And at some point the responsibility to play a role in that. So All Raise is like, we started with a small group of people. We thought about what are the few initiatives we could get behind that would be in service of explicitly getting more dollars to a diverse group of founders. 
and getting more diverse check writers around the table. And it was a series of, um, you know, some of it was campaigns having entrepreneurs sign pledges that they were paying attention to like who were the investors on their cap table and how they were hiring in their teams. One of part of it was doing office hours to try to build female office hours to try to build community amongst groups that didn't have as much community readily available to them just by virtue of who was already there. So we started hosting kind of like female uh, founder meetups and then we do mentoring sessions with investors to try to share knowledge to mostly like build con and and give some contacts for people. So that's like all different levels. But the part of the idea is like, hey, let's you know let's promote community and let's show role models and have the younger generation feel confidence that like there's people they can look up to. Like I could be like that. I I do think those things are important. Um, totally yeah. agree. Thank you very much for sharing your time with us. This podcast was recorded on October. 23rd, 2019. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part or disclosed by any recipient to any other person. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the recipient. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty, express or implied, as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any recipient is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that recipient, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.